Libros Schmibros is a podcast exploring the people, books, movies, and ideas that Angelinos care about in a thoughtful way that even New Yorkers can understand. We're coming to you from Libros Schmibros, our nonprofit bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights, on the west coast of the country and the east bank of the mighty Los Angeles River. Hi, this is David Kippen, broadcasting live from a reasonable facsimile of Libro Schmibros over my shoulder at uh, 103 North Boyle Avenue in the heart of Boyle Heights. Uh, we're a nonprofit lending library. Um, please come see us whenever you're uh, able to stray out of doors again. Um, we, uh, we put books into people's hands, and occasionally we put a book as good as this one into people's hands. Let me, yes, can you see this? I think you can. Um, this is Mike Davis's new book, Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. And it's actually by Mike and a really talented colleague by the name of John Wiener. Um, but I don't have to reach far to find books by Mike Davis. Um, there's this one, Ecology of Fear, which is indispensable for students of Los Angeles. And there is um, The Monster at the Door, which is highly relevant right now because Mike saw the pandemic coming from a long way away. This is a book that's easily a decade old. Um, and then there's City of Quartz, which I'm ashamed not to be holding up because, of course, it's the indispensable volume from, uh, for understanding Los Angeles alongside maybe Carrie McWilliams and Island on the Land, but it's not a very long list. Um, and so it's a treat to have Mike here to, uh, uh, to talk with us, though you wouldn't know it from all the talking I'm doing. Um, let me just, by way of starting, say this, which is um, there was a 25th anniversary celebration of City of Quartz um, that took place a couple of years ago that I think you weren't, you weren't able to join, Mike. Um, but uh, Chris- no, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't pay my fare, David. <laughs> I would have taken it out and of I my- I only room. live in San Diego. I just wanted gas fare. <laughs> I would have sent you airfare. I would have <laughs> come to get you on a magic carpet. But this, I was not the organizer of this event. This was put together by Christopher Hawthorne, who was then the architecture critic for the LA Times and is now design and architecture advisor to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, and we've been seeing a lot of on TV lately. Anyway, I got off a line there that um, I was probably optimistic uh, in uttering, which is that City of Quartz um, was a not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but a self-averting prophecy, meaning it painted such a dystopian view of Los Angeles's future that our sheer terror at the possibility enabled us to find a different future. But it's just possible that some people find LA dystopian in a slightly different way. Mike, what do you think? Do you think how, how does the LA of the present, um, from from your vantage, compare with the LA you were predicting, or at least uh, at least um, suggesting in uh, in the nineteen nineties? Well, actually, in the city, of course, what I was trying to argue is that both the Gidget at the beach, you know. Uh, downtown Hollywood, Mulholland Drive images of LA on one side, and uh, Godzilla stomping on the city or volcanoes erupting under Mel Melrose, uh, form a kind of unity. And neither, of course, accurately characterize this great working class city uh, at all. In terms of the changes I've seen, I mean, the, the, the most fundamental and important change has been the success of uh, the labor crusades of the 
late 1980s, 1990s, uh, which after I came back to Los Angeles from Ireland and England at the end of the 80s, I was able to attend the demonstrations and managed to get arrested a couple of times. But it's transformed uh, city politics. Another thing that uh, amazed me when I came back is, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe grassroots gentrification. Hmm. I mean, if you go to the, what were once the, you know, really tired working class neighborhoods, flatland neighborhoods of the city, they were suddenly springing back to life. People were painting their houses. Uh, they were, you know, planting corn or tomatoes. And Which neighborhoods are you thinking of? What, the one? Which neighborhoods would, are you thinking of? Oh, all through South LA and uh, Alameda corridor communities. Uh, I mean, there was a great fatality in, in this city uh, because, of course, when Latinos come to the United States, whether from Mexico or Central America or from South America, they bring a different urbanism. And you wrote a book called Magical Urbanism, didn't you, with this for a thesis? Yeah, that, that indeed. But trying to argue that you know, they have given an importance to public space, to the outdoors, uh, to sharing community life, which, of course, you know, wasn't entirely missing in the city by any means in the old east side or in black Los Angeles. But the weight they added to that uh, and the creative energies they brought uh, was infinitely more important than anything that my uh, former colleagues at the uh, Southern California Institute of Architecture have designed or built. I'm not, it's not a critique of them. You know, I love some of them. But it was just a huge fact that was very little commented on at the time. Now, on the other side, yeah. of course, all the social conditions, all the economic precari uh, precariousness uh, that produced uh, the explosion in 1992, which, remember, wasn't just a reaction to Rodney uh, uh, King. It was a reaction to a recession that was cutting right through the heart the poorest immigrant uh, uh, communities in Los Angeles. All those conditions remain. And of course, they've been greatly exacerbated by uh, the unaffordability of housing, uh, which has reached almost a, you know, an impossible uh, stage, which is why in some ways the urban crisis in Southern California has migrated from the central city to the older 1940s, 1950s uh, suburbs. And of course, there- You're thinking uh, now of- Excuse me? You're thinking now of neighborhoods like- Oh, I mean, you know, like the Eastern San Gabriel Valley, but the Inland Empire, the town I was born right. in Montana, uh, ended up being kind of one half uh, Orange County commuter suburbs. And the other half, inner city people who come out, got jobs and warehouses and uh, tried to find what, you know, what was left of the suburban dream for them, you know, good schools, safer neighborhoods. And of course, the Inland Empire was the, one of the two national epicenters of the housing meltdown in 2008. And 
tens and tens of thousands of people lost their their homes and any little savings they uh, they may have accumulated. And so this is a story that, again, that's hardly ever touched on, has been this this great migration uh, to the suburbs and the tragedy that so many people, instead of finding the things they were looking for, those better schools, those jobs, those safer neighborhoods, have found the opposite uh, and now find themselves, you know, a uh, hundred miles away, maybe from you know the old neighborhood that they uh, that they left, and many of those old neighborhoods, of course, uh, now have property values that you know are so unimaginable and and, and so surreal. And of course, gentrification is a disease that brings lots of other things in its uh, wake. I mean, I particularly sensitive to the claim that Silver Lake is now the east side. Uh, <laughs> Believe you me, we in Boyle Heights have the same sensitivity. <laughs> well, you're endangered, um, you're endangered as well. My wife's uh, Mexican and uh, she's been involved with artists and our equivalent of Boyle, uh, 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 Boyle Heights here and uh, Barrio Logan. And yeah. um, We've had, a, we've had an argument for years because she's so excited that artists, young Latino artists are moving in. But I've been rooting for a bigger and, and, and deadlier street gangs because the artists, <laughs> the artists of course, <clears throat> I mean, they come with the best of intentions to, uh, you know, invigorate the community. But then they end up getting evicted by the landlords. and pretty soon you have rich people from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, well, who are, are the major, uh, together with Chinese real estate investment companies, they're the, they're the major investors in downtown real estate. San Diego has an almost completely dormitory residential downtown with, you know, prices, uh, uh, prices to, uh, to the moon. But, I mean, we live in a period where almost no neighborhood has uh, been off limits to this. So it'll be very interesting to see as we move in, as we move back in history to the Great Depression, uh, what will happen then? Will it force more people out of their their homes and their neighborhoods? Will it slow the, uh, you know, the expansion of, of developers and flippers and all those different species of people that? We wish some great white shark would gobble up and uh, I don't know. Do, do you see another depression on the horizon? It's not on the horizon. Uh, it's, it's here. I mean, we've returned to a state of mass immiseration in this country, which isn't surprising given that most studies show that about half of Americans have about $500 or less uh, in the bank. Uh, to get them uh, through. This is an extinction event for tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of small uh, businesses. The the gig economy, a lot of it will disappear permanently. And if one of the results of this is a tendency toward deglobalization, that is toward the repatriation of 
factories and units of production that were formerly located offshore, if they come back home, it's not going to revivify uh, the industrial working class because yeah. it's absolutely certain that what will happen is increased automation. So I foresee an, an extended period of economic stagnation and high unemployment uh, brings us closer to uh, the world that my favorite uh, uh, auteur, movie auteur. Which one? John Carpenter. Ah. I don't know if you recall a science fiction film called They Live. Absolutely. The one where all of the Republicans turned out to be venomous aliens in disguise. Yes. <laughs> For a second, I but thought you... Most, but most of the working class were essentially living in one mega uh, homeless encampment. For a second, feeling, I was... Feeling that this was, you know, somehow uh, their fault. I mean, the good news, I think, in, in Los Angeles, but all over the country, is that this event is not only uh, radicalized health workers, some of them, like the nurses' union, have been in the forefront of progressive movement for you know some years now, but it's going to lead to uh, a general upsurge of, of of labor, at least by people who still have their jobs. And uh, I foresee uh, Jeff Bezos being there in his uh, castle war every ever he is, you know, surrounded by angry warehouse people and delivery drivers wielding pitchforks. And uh... <laughs> Quatemoc in particular was asking about the potential impact of the virus on social movements and housing and homelessness. I wonder, um, since you've outlined some of these potential consequences and maybe even the reaction against them, do you see um, you know, a little? Do you see more sunshine or noir as these forces come into collision over the next uh, months and years? I see alternative outcomes. In other words, I see one set of possibilities. I see another. This is a battlefield, mm -hmm. and it's definitely, in a socioeconomic sense, uh, a new age, and it generates great opportunities to move forward. But of course, it also raises uh, you know, the threat of further assumption of, of, of power by uh, the Republicans, further undermining uh, of democracy. The one thing I think has been missing, however, on uh, the progressive side and in the Sanders campaign and in the Warren campaigns, is really any of the sense of internationalism hmm. that I think in retrospect was the great bragging point of uh, the left in the last several generations, hmm. not just the 60s, but the Central American Solidarity Movement, uh, for instance, and in, you know, in the 1980s. I didn't hear world, world poverty mentioned once in the debates. No. Of course, with coronavirus, we stand on the edge of what could be the real massacre, which is it's spread through populations uh, where uh, compromised immunity is probably the case for almost a majority of people. Africa, 24 million mm. people with HIV, millions more with tuberculosis. 
poor access or none at all to sanitation. It's ridiculous to go to a slum like Kibera, which is a million people in uh, Nairobi, mm. and tell people you have to wash your hands uh, every hour with soap, or that you have to practice social distancing when the uh, density is maybe, you know, 40,000 people per uh, uh, square mile. But above all, the uh, thing that will amplify and, and increase mortality is malnutrition. Mm. And uh, over the last uh, 20 years, the number of African children, uh, young children, suffering from stunted growth has increased by many millions uh, uh, everywhere else in the world. It's been uh, reduced or become, you know, very rare, but it's increasing. Um, malnutrition uh, is a major co-infection of uh, coronavirus. Uh, and of course, LA being the international city it is, it doesn't feel as if those places are safely on the other side of anybody's planet. Um, I, I dare say that the consequences of that um, will be felt by, you know, all the immigrants whose families are in all of those places still. Well, I can almost see the consequences from my yard because we live within uh, sight of our sister city, Tijuana, where half my wife's family lives. And uh, dreadful things are going to happen down there. Uh, first of all, to the refugees living in these, uh, you know, frankly squalid uh, camps or homeless, but to uh, people as a whole. And uh, some of the leaders in uh, the uh, Chicano community here and some Latin American scholars have been writing to Governor Newsom saying, look, uh, it's now that you're able to send masks and stuff back to uh, other parts of the country, you know, got to think about uh, giving aid uh, on the on the southern border of, of, of California. That would uh, be beautiful. Hey, Mike, I got to tell you, you've got a lot to learn about promoting a book. Uh, I've never been good at promoting a book, <laughs> except, except in one case. What was uh, that? Well, it was City Courts, which I thought was such a deadly read. I mean, a really dull book. I mean, who wants to read almost 100 pages about homeowner associations and battles over picking up dog poo and so on? So I gave it, I got this wonderful photographer who worked with me uh, to uh, uh, create this really gnarish uh, uh, cover with the menacing looking downtown federal uh, uh, jail. And then I had a photograph of myself making me look like I was, uh, you know, tough little boxer from, <laughs> you know, far from the case. So that was packaged uh, successfully, though I still at the end of the day, I was utterly shocked that anybody bothered to read this book. Well, I mean, you had your secret weapon going for you, which I don't think you get nearly enough credit for, which is it's no coincidence you were on the UC Riverside creative writing faculty, weren't you? Uh, at least cross-listed with um, no, the history I'm, faculty. You're a I'm, hell of a writer. I, I retired from, uh, I'm retired from UCR, which is an absolutely terrific uh, 
uh, MFA writing program. Yeah. So when I wrote City of Courts, my, my major resource, aside from the fact that uh, I read the LA Times in every regional edition, uh, yeah. for most of the 20th century, actually now, I think I've read it, read it all, but my real secret resource in writing the book is I was very OD'd on intellectuals, so I went back and uh, a friend of mine was uh, dying. He'd been on the road, heavy-duty truck driver for far too long. So I just walked into his job, and I spent eight months hauling blanket-wrapped furniture to the Bay Area and Vegas and so on. But the thing is that I'd pick up, pick up this furniture at... Uh, literally scores, maybe a hundred different furniture factories in uh, LA and hidden away in amazing, you know, places. Yeah. So I got a long look at the sweatshop economy. And I also worked with a terrific group of young uh, uh, Latino guys. And uh, so, you know, those insights were very important in writing. writing but you also... You also have to learn how to take a compliment for, you know, not even for a historian, just for any writer of nonfiction. Your prose is, I think, uh, top shelf. Now, um, how, I'd be curious to ask you, how important do you think um, rhetoric and language are to social history? Because you seem sometimes to be doing it so well, you're doing something completely different. Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because learning to write was the hardest thing uh, I've ever done in my life. Uh, I was in I was I was in my early thirties uh, when I finally began to write, and still it was incredibly uh, uh, difficult for me. Which is why in uh, writing classes, I tell my students, I said, "Look, if I can learn to write." You can too, but you've got to be willing to go to the, you know, the, the call face every morning. It's mm. very, very difficult. Young architects, and, or for that matter, dancers, uh, playwrights, they expect it's going to be difficult. They expect to sweat. The problem is now a lot of people just go to MFA programs to basically uh, show and tell and, you know, impress uh, their friends. I remain convinced everybody can write, but uh, you you have to have a realistic understanding of uh, of what it takes. My writing has also evolved over over the years, from almost impossible to very difficult, yeah. to now at times almost uh, almost enjoyable. Now, um, how other than hacking away at the coal face yourself did you learn? Well, that's what I did. But I mean, who who taught? Did you did you have teachers? Did you have at least models? Oh, no, 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 no. Writers, you, writers, teachers are books. Well, what books? What books made a writer out of you? Well, that's kind of interesting. My sources are really obscure. One of the people who had the greatest influence on me. <coughs> excuse me. There's a Welsh socialist historian named Gwen Williams. Really? Who attempted and largely succeeded in writing the entire history of Wales from the uh, beginning of the Neolithic down to the miners' 
strike under under Thatcher. But he was a marvelous uh, storyteller as well as oh. historian. So I've always been attracted to to griots, <laughs> great great storytellers. Well, your course has made me. Uh, one reason I could never possibly write a memoir because of my tendency to turn everything into a better story to tell guys at the local saloon. And, uh, and I'm often amazed when people tell me, yeah, that really happened like you said, Mike. And I say, what, are you kidding? Did it really? Oh, wow. Well, of course. I, I distrust uh, memory in general. So in writing uh, this book with John Wiener, Set the Night on Fire, I tried yeah. to stick almost entirely uh, to written sources or people being interviewed who uh, had exceptional memories like uh, Raoul Reese, who died, unfortunately. Uh, the editor uh, of La Raza, right? Yeah, yeah. He was an extraordinary guy. And uh, his memory of things was, uh, uh, you know, absolutely uh, uh, sharp. People like that, I, I, I trusted. But me and my uh, best friend, who's a uh, uh, working class Jewish boxer. He's still fighting. He's, the guy is like 75 years old. He's still sparred. It's ridiculous. But, but he and I, I mean, we're like, uh, I don't know if we even like each other, but, you know, we're, we're kind of genetically uh, linked these days. He's, he's my brother. And, you know, we're so used to telling wild and woolly stories. But he's my major spell, spell check because uh, uh, when it gets to things involving like uh, our friendships with people in the Panthers or events that we were both in. Gotcha. Uh, now, did you, did you conduct a lot of those interviews yourself or did you leave that to your LA leg man, John Weiner? Well, a lot of the crucial interviews that I intended to conduct became impossible because uh, I was diagnosed with uh, uh, cancer four years ago, and then uh, that led to the discovery of a second totally unrelated cancer. So I've been basically housebound or unable to travel beyond the city limits of San Diego. Uh, since then, I wasn't able to. I conducted in, uh, initial interviews, but uh, John really came to the rescue of the project. Because I realized I could continue writing basically the uh, narrative of uh, black, brown uh, liberation. But uh, counterculture, look, I was the last person I ever, you know, that I knew well into the 70s who still had a crew cut. People <laughs> suspected that I was a, uh, a cop. I never smoked dope. I mean, I, I you know. It's I'm not too late. Of... I mean, if you've got an illness, maybe now would be the time. <laughs> do you mind if I do you mind if I ask about your health now? Well, uh, I'm roadkill. If I ever get the virus, I'll tell you. I'll tell you that that I'm a I'm a survivor. Had exceptionally uh, good luck because for uh, uh, at one point it looked uh, you know it looked pretty bad. I was, I was tearing my last bad jokes to tell, you know. Um, did you have any last words ready that you weren't able to use? 
Oh, I thought uh, about last uh, uh, words, but all that comes to mind is fuck the bourgeoisie. <laughs> I know you can't uh, uh, put that on air. You're going to have to scratch it out. Yeah, there goes my contract with CBS. Yeah. Um, okay. So Sorry. If, you, if you could come back to L.A. Uh, at some point not long from now, what would you visit first? What do you miss most about L.A.? Well, the things I miss are all missing. They're, they're gone. I had a, a, Linnell George came to see me. She's a wonderful writer who uh, started off in the LA Weekly and then uh, worked with the LA Times now teaching at Loyola. Yeah. And um, it was, you know, it was a way about so many things, uh, you know, that were gone. Uh, things that were vitally important to us. And it's a little like I wrote about in City uh, uh, of Courts, where the landmarks of people's lives are just regularly removed. So, where so you, you, you have great difficulty establishing not only personal continuity, personal memory, but continuity of uh, community memory. Though I must say, there's one huge exception to that, and it's where your bookstore is located. <sighs> Lending library, but um, don't let me interrupt a compliment. <laughs> no, no, I mean, the, the distinctive thing about the East Side, and it reminds me of a, a short period of time I spent in Quebec, and Quebec's national slogan is, I remember who I am. Oh. And against the idea of a kind of rootless Los Angeles where nobody really knows where they live, and it goes by some kind of vague name. People on the east side know exactly where they live and who they are. And in some ways, it's the most culturally conservative community imaginable, but in a great sense, uh, you know, a good sense. And it has a long history of fighting like hell to prevent the removal of those essential landmarks uh, in community uh, history, communal existence. Well, Libro Schmibros is fortunate enough to be in a building from 1889 in the Boyle Hotel with a plaque on the side to prove it. So I'm curious if you could, uh, if, not, if not commemorate standing landmarks, if you could hang a plaque on sites that used to house particular um, uh, um, places of interest, um, either in general or to activism in the 1960s, what places come to mind? Oh, well, uh, Priya Coffee Shop on the east side where... Uh, is that Frida is in Frida Kahlo? Huh? Was that Frida is in Frida Kahlo? No, no, Priya, I think it was called. P-R-I-Y-A. Yeah, ah. I, I, I could be wrong. Somebody on the east side should correct me, but it's where the Brown Berets, uh, uh, you know, were formed. The high schools should all have monuments to... Uh, uh, you know the students in the in the sixties who blew them out. Uh, I often uh, got in trouble years ago because I kept uh, advocating that we should particularly commem commemorate uh, bad events. Mm. It should be a historical marker to where the Chinese were massacred in eighteen seventy one uh, downtown. Uh, there should be a major memorial. Uh, to the Watts insurrection and to, uh, you know, people uh, who died. Uh, 
I, I met a wonderful uh, Japanese-American guy who teaches at UCLA. And he had this astonishing family album of billboards in what's today West Hollywood, but they were all over the city. And they were saying, bash a Jap. No Japs wanted in this neighborhood. People forget that the public landscape of racism and intolerance. Uh, I mean, you, it was hard to go around without encountering signs of it. It wasn't that much different from the Deep South. Of course, I mean, some of the most useful uh, landmarks we have um, of that era or any other are the books that come out of them. I wonder from the 1960s in Los Angeles, as you were working on um, uh, Set the Night on Fire, um, were there particular books, fiction and nonfiction, um, or anything else that, that you found yourself going back to, learning from? Well, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I've gone back over the years periodically uh, to John Retchie. Oh. And, and it's City of Night, isn't it? The, that's the first and the, and the major one, yeah. It, it, it's uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, novel. Uh, that hopefully people are still, uh, you know, reading because he's a major uh, LA writer. There's a uh, history. There's several histories written right afterward by uh, journalists of the 1965 uh, rebellion, and there's one by Robert Conant, C-O-N-O-T. Oh yeah, and it's like Knights of Fire, Rivers yeah. of Blood. It has some ridiculous title, but it actually is the view from the community. He interviewed and, you know, uh, showed, he interviewed hundreds of people in the community. And really, he gives it uh, uh, a presentation of its side. It's the most accurate account of those events. And then there was a guy who I celebrate in the book. He's otherwise unfortunately too forgotten, named Paul Bullock. Paul Bullock was uh, a labor economist at the Institute of Industrial Relations at UCLA. And he was part of a stellar group of uh, left New Deal people who, who ran that. It was kind of the graduate school for the LA labor movement. But Paul became integrally involved in the life of, uh, of South Central and particularly of Watts, who was also a great jazz fan. Oh. And he wrote this book uh, where I think it's called, you know, People of Watts Speak Out. And all he did was act as facilitator and editor. And uh, the book is just the voices uh, of, of people, uh, a real cross-section of, of the community. I, I've always thought that was also uh, an exceptional book. Uh, well, maybe now in this day of, uh, you know, online PDFing and even print on demand, some of these books should, could come back. I would, I would love to be able to lay hands on them. I, I noticed in the book you give a good juicy chapter to the Los Angeles Free Press, um, which I've, I've actually been teaching out of. I'm using some of Harlan Ellison's old TV columns and Liza Williams' personal columns um, for my students, where I'm teaching 60s and 70s journalism. Would you talk just for a minute about, about the Freep and, uh, and its legacy? And well, I mean, John wrote that chapter. He'd be mm. the best person to talk to, but it reminds people. This was the, you know, the largest underground paper in the country. 
and it had constant on the ground reporting. For instance, in August 1965, the LA Times had uh, this incredible headline. It was something called like barbarism in the city or savagery in the city. Uh, the free bed coverage, but its, its headline was the people of Watts speak. So particularly in the era when the LA Times remained such a reactionary institution, I mean, the uh, Freep was the major source of alternative news, as well as strange and, uh, uh, you know, wonderful uh, writing. There's also the People's World, which is the West Coast Communist paper, uh, which had some great people on it, and uh, probably long forgotten, but it was every week I'd, I'd pick up the Freep, then I'd, I'd get the... Uh, uh, the people's world. And that, that was how I understood LA in the uh, days when I was there in the 1960s. This sounds like an anthology waiting to happen. I hope you or somebody gets around to it. Tell me, um, is, uh, what was it like to be part of the movement in the 1960s? I mean, apart from success or failure, was it exciting? Did you feel as if you were, you know, living out history? At times I was terrified. I mean, I have to tell you this, and I think everybody was. Uh, I remember one year I went to three different Black Panther, uh, you know, funerals. Mm -hmm. And you, if you were stopped, very often, you know, they'd charge you with uh, armed robbery just to hold you for 72 two hours and terrorize you. Of course, for activists in the Black brown communities, it, it was even worse. But then there were moments of, yes, a sure exaltation. Because, like when? Well, actually from uh, the first time I set foot in LA, which was uh, just before the, uh, uh, the Watts Rebellion in August 1965. And I met a guy named Levi Kingston, who, is one of the two people the book is dedicated to. Yeah. And Levi, Levi's a wonderful and very important figure, uh, not only in this period, but down to the day he died, unfortunately, a month ago. He was, oh. in, a, he was in a nursing home writing petitions to politicians about the miserable conditions in the nursing home and trying to organize <laughs> people in the nursing home. But it was through Levi's eyes that I saw Los Angeles. He introduced me to uh, a lot of the uh, people most active in the South Central uh, community. But Levi knew everybody and he knitted them all together. He loved introducing one group of people uh, uh, to another. But he was also LA's kind of constant gardener. He just spent his entire lifetime organizing. Uh, he never sought money managed to be everywhere at once, but, but uh, didn't drive. And the times I spent with him were, uh, uh, you know, they were wonderful. I, and, then, and then there's the person who was uh, the single most important intellectual and moral influence on in my life, even though we fought like cats and dogs forever. And that was Dorothy Healy, oh. who uh, uh, was the 
unorthodox leader of the very unorthodox Southern California district of uh, the Communist Party. And in writing the book, or at least my share of the book, was a constant conversation and debate with Dorothy. Mm. And I, I, I could hear in the back of my mind Dorothy saying, oh, Bubala, you're such an infantile leftist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure your FBI file isn't as fat as hers, but what's in it? Have you ever looked? Yeah, I, I looked in it. It was, it was written by idiots. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, one of our family's closest friends, San Diego, was an old Yugoslav butcher named Lee Gregovich, who'd been a communist in uh, in the 30s and 40s. And uh, my father had a bad heart attack in high school, so I quit for half a year to work full time delivering meat. And I used to deliver meat to uh, Lee. The only job he could find was a being a cook way out in the back country, East San Diego, and always pour me a little bit of red wine, and then pat me on the back and said, read Marx. <laughs> he, he had never read Marx, and most, in fact, rank and file communists hadn't done it, but somehow the FBI heard this story. So they launched into this frenzied investigation. They spelled his name wrong. Uh, instead of the Croatian version of his name, it's the Russian version of the name. And, and think that I'm, you know, uh, being controlled by uh, this guy in the, in the KGB named uh, uh, Grajevich. And the whole FBI file, at least the parts that weren't blocked out, was just like this. These guys were incompetent clerks <laughs> and, and little more than that. And looking back on it, I say, thank God they weren't more competent, that they weren't smart but universally they tended to be dumb. And in later years, I discovered having several cops as friends or uh, as students, just how universally hated the FBI has always been uh, by the local, local cops. Well, um, I wish we could spend all afternoon together um, and I wanna spend at least this much more. Um, tell me, uh, What's next? I know you, you know you finally put a 600-page brick of a masterpiece to bed. What do you want to write now? Well, I have one remaining project which I uh, I hope to finish, and it's called Star Spangled Leviathan, and it's a history of American nationalism, yeah. but a very different uh, view on nationalism and how one should analyze nationalism. I'm particularly interested in the political economy of nationalism and how successively in American history, uh, coalitions of different uh, groups with uh, you know, very profound economic interests uh, have joined together to advance one set of ideas about uh, citizenship, uh, suffrage, uh, foreign policy, attitudes, uh, uh, toward the oppression of people and uh, black people in the South and so on. And I've actually written 100, 125 pages of this. So uh, if I don't have to spend the rest of my life uh, writing and talking about coronavirus, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I'll be doing. Well, I promise I won't ask any more questions about coronavirus, though it's 
one among a zillion subjects I could keep talking to you about until the cows come home. I do have Star-Spangled Leviathan. I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head. I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little bit like City of Quartz, not because of the title, but in the sense that, you know, it's sunshine and noir. Nationalism is, you know, can, you know, crimes are committed in its name, and yet it has the potential to be a force for good. Is that more or less what you're finding? Uh, I'm a very, I belong to people who are anti-nationalist, pure and simple, 100%. Um, you know, I love the popular cultures and the people of this country, uh, but I've never been in any way, shape, or form a patriot, and I've never believed that the agenda of human liberation can be advanced uh, while waving a flag over our heads. Uh, it puts me uh, uh, certainly in a, you know, in a small minority of people, and it produces it's produced great difficulties because I, uh, many of my oldest friends, uh, you know, are not leftists, never have been. They're Vietnam vets, they're construction workers. Most of my uh, big family, uh, most of them in Seattle, uh, you know, the same, uh, you know, the same way. But uh, that's, where, that's, that's where I stand. And I think right now, if you look at the world and you see how every country has approached the crisis in a totally nationalistic way, yeah. uh, putting into, for instance, into doubt the future of the European Union, but also of uh, uh, the UN organizations and international uh, organizations. I mean, for Trump, for instance, uh, America first means Africa last. And uh, I think this is the world that we have to uh, confront strictly from the standpoint of, of humanity united is internationalist. Uh, and yeah. to some extent, I've been very worried that the American left, and of course, I could not be more excited to see a generation of kids who identify uh, uh, with some version of socialism or social democracy, but there is a tendency toward a kind of America firstism on the left. And uh, I think one of the... On the left, who are you thinking of? Well, I'm just thinking of a discourse that doesn't bother to address conditions and uh, other countries yeah. that buys, yeah. in, buys into patriotism uh, has to always put the American flag uh, pin on their you know their lapels, but it because one of the great qualities of the American left and the left of my generation we made gigantic uh, mistakes uh, stupid mistakes. But one of the great qualities of the American left has always been its internationalism yeah. and its willingness to put uh, oppressed peoples and the rest of the world uh, in the forefront of, uh, of struggles. And what's happening now reminds me a little bit of what happened during the Second World War when the Communist Party was dissolved mm -hmm. under a chairman named Earl Browder. Yeah. The communist slogan being Communism is uh, 20th century Americanism. Uh, no, that, that's not a route I want to go down. 
I have actually teaching in a Catholic college. I find a lot in common with some of the liberation theology people mm. and with people who uh, takes, take the Pope's side. And if you look at it, the Pope is virtually the only major uh, public figure, maybe apart from the Dalai Lama, who talks always and almost exclusively of human unity and human solidarity, which of course gets him in immense trouble with groups like the right-wing hierarchy in parts of the U.S. Yeah. Um, speaking of the American flag, uh, certainly one used to wave, I believe, in the mouth of an eagle next to a globe in the uh, lobby of the Los Angeles Times. Um, I wonder if it's true, weren't you at work at one point on a biography of Gen General Harrison Gray Otis, the founder of the I Times? Yes, I was, uh, I was originally going to write a history of the McNamara others who blew the Times building up, right. uh, which was a huge tragedy for labor in Los Angeles. But I found, <clears throat> I found Otis a far more compelling character after I discovered, for instance, that he, had been an, he grew up in an abolitionist family. Really? He and his wife had been young uh, radicals at the beginning of the Civil War. He was amongst an officer corps that became uh, radicalized and became largely abolitionist by the end of the war. Really? In other words, he was a, a, a radical Democrat, uh, typical of the time. Uh, what the hell happened? Well, this is what's so fascinating to me because it's a very large untold story is how is it that, you know, these idealists and radical Democrats of uh, the 1860s ended up becoming the robber barons of the 1880s mm -hmm. and uh, the 1890s. So I was using, wanting to use Otis uh, to study this larger, uh, you know, phenomenon. Because uh, in some ways you could almost say that they were the new left of, of you know, the Lincoln era and many of the labor struggles uh, in Los Angeles would pit Otis as proprietor of the Times uh, against union leaders who themselves had almost identical biographies, had been union officers, idealists, abolitionists uh, 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 like him. And also simply from the standpoint of storytelling, you can't get better in Otis's life. He ended up, because he belonged to this regiment, the 23rd uh, Ohio, uh, whose other officers included uh, 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 Bill McKinley <laughs> uh, uh, and Rutherford B. Hayes, as well as a couple <laughs> of guys who became senators and governors. It's just an astonishing uh, uh, group of people. And he's always pissed off that he never, as Hayes and then McKinley became president, he never got the kind of government positions he wanted. And uh, the most he got really was uh, during the Grant administration, he was appointed to be uh, the collector chief for the Pribilof Islands. The Pribilof <laughs> Islands are these tiny islands in the Bering Sea that have one of the largest fur bearing seal populations in the world. Mike, is this story going to stay untold? I don't know, but just 
to, to give you one more tidbit, while he's on the island, he fell in love with his uh, uh, underling's wife, had this torrid affair. <laughs> but his life, his life goes on uh, 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 like this, not just his wars against labor, but he also was the king of the Mexicali Valley for a long time with his uh, son-in-law, Norman Chandler. Uh, they owned all the land in the Mexicali Valley and played a, a large role uh, supporting the uh, counter-revolutionary side during the Mexican Revolution. Well, like a lot of people, I only ever read the first chapter. And of course, my mouth has been watering ever since. Was it, uh, which I, th I think you did publish it maybe in New Left Review. What, um, was it your illness that interfered with it? No, uh, it's with several other projects uh, that excited me, but nobody else. Uh, I had to leave it uh, behind. It, it didn't really uh, arouse uh, uh, much interest. The other book I wish I'd written uh, which I only published an article about in the uh, uh, Sierra Club Journal, is looking at the World War II home front as the greatest green experiment in American history. Ooh. And far beyond uh, victory gardens, uh, uh, it involved things like there was a movement, there was a uh, part of the wartime administration uh, was a section devoted to rational fashion. Okay, because you have to conserve uh, fabrics. So how did you keep fabrics attractive, but at the same time uh, keep them within rational limits of uh, consumption? Hitchhiking was encouraged during the war. The Republican Party of Colorado vowed in 1942 uh, that they would only hitchhike and never drive uh, uh, to rallies, all kinds wow. of communal values that uh, have been lost or in danger of being lost became, uh, uh, you know, popular again. Well, if I it, it was an astonishing moment, actually. If I can't find the chapter you did publish, if I can't Google it up tonight, you'll be hearing from me tonight <clears throat> so I can chase it down. What do you think of the new El Segundo LA Times? You said earlier you haven't missed the morning of it, uh, you know, since you were practically, you know, out in, in trousers. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, as many radicals have in uh, LA's past, I have issues. I had serious issues with the LA Times and they had serious issues with me. No, I like the, the, the New Times, but what is devastating really is the absence now of investigative journalism on the community level. Uh, I mean, the LA Times, even the bad old days, had nine or 10 regional editions and had like West San Fernando Valley, East San Fernando, and each of those editions had a small dedicated group of journalists, not just reporting high school football scores, but doing investigative studies. And so now I think a larger part of the 8 million people in uh, Los Angeles County, uh, there's nobody out there actively investigating what's going on at their city council meeting, uh, you know, what's happening with, uh, developers and land use in their uh, 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 communities. And that, you know, you aggregate that nationally and it's uh, disastrous. It undermines uh, 
uh, you know, democracy in the most uh, basic and fundamental, uh, you know, ways. So, yeah, I enjoy reading the Times. I particularly enjoyed some of the younger uh, journalists who, who, who write for it. Any bylines in particular come to mind? Uh, let me see. Uh, younger Chicano journalists. And, of course, uh, you know, I read Steve, Steve Lopez often with great enjoyment, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, with frustration. But he's extraordinarily effective lightning rod for yeah. popular feeling. Uh, you know, in the in the city, and yeah, that's he, what makes makes his column, uh, you know, it's so effective and kind of, uh, you know, required reading. Sports page, I think, is deteriorated, but you know. <laughs> but then again, the Dodgers have deteriorated. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Steve Lopez has been good to us at Libros. He's definitely uh, a hero um, in our neck of the woods. Before I let you go, we are in fact a nonprofit bilingual storefront lending library and. Having written a book about the 1960s, you should probably be waiting for a question about the bookstores and libraries of the area of the era. Were there particular stores where people could go find stories they weren't getting anywhere else? Of, of course. I mean, the first one I discovered was Papa Box, which was across from the USC campus. So later moved to uh, uh, Santa Monica. Uh, it was a wonderful bookstore. And of course, all the amazing used bookstores, there seemed to be an infinity of used bookstores at one point. But what uh, I recall the greatest loss was Midnight Special. Midnight Special started off as a literally a, a little left bookstore in the closet. It was the tiniest bookstore you ever saw. And thanks to uh, Margie, uh, you know, managed and then and then owned it. It became one of the great independent bookstores uh, in America, and uh, I can't even think about Midnight Special without you know, kind of my stomach being uh, you know churned by uh, uh, what happened. Uh, I managed for a while the Progressive Bookstore, which was the CP bookstore on Seventh in Union, until an unfortunate incident where we had this guy who was going around taking notes on all the books. And we were very close. The FBI headquarters was just a block away in those days. And my friend Ron and I uh, sized him up and kind of get, get him out of the bookstore. And he started complaining. So we pushed him a little out of the bookstore. And then later that night, my boss, Dorothy Healy, called me up and said, well, Bubula, you've always wanted to be a heroic proletarian. Now's your chance, because you just uh, assaulted the Soviet cultural attaché to the United States. Of course, in the bookstore, spying, because we, I, you know, I had books on Trotsky, China, all this stuff that they didn't want you uh, 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 to read. So that started my career as a heroic worker. Uh, well, you can <laughs> always pull a shift at Libro Schmibros. You have only to ask. I always, I always I'd love to. I, 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 I'll never forget when a city of Los Angeles uh, sanitation truck pulled up to the curb outside of Libros and the driver ran in while the truck was left idling at the curb and said, I've only got a minute. Have you got some Trotsky? 
<laughs> I should ask you, as, as an experienced purveyor of books you, yourself, do you have any parting advice for those of us who are still putting books into people's hands in Boyle Heights? Ah, oh, well, I have very esoteric advice about two books that you won't be able to find. Ah, ever. sounds like a challenge. Okay. One of them is called, Where the, um, what's it called? Where the Grants is Dream, or something like this, written by Ward Moore, who's one of the great bohemian radical writers of all time. And it's mainly known uh, for this novel he wrote about what would happen if the South won the Civil War, mm -hmm. come to Jubilee. But his first book is a Jewish version of On the Road. In fact, I've often wondered if Kerouac didn't, uh, Crib part of it, all set against the background of what became an apocalyptic department store strike uh, at the beginning of the war. And the second book, uh, this was written in 1940, I think. The second book was written in 1932, and it's called Flutter of an Eyelid by Myron Brinick. Brinick was the first uh, out of the closet and also very successful uh, uh, a gay writer. And this book is a Vermont clay. That is, it's really about uh, actual uh, people. And its plot is, I mean, I've always loved uh, The Loved One. Yves mm -hmm. uh, Which, yeah, which is a hilarious novel. But this goes, you know, way beyond that. It's in a different and more eccentric orbit around uh, uh, Los Angeles. In one of the opening scenes, the protagonist is a kind of tired, very uh, aristocratic New York writer in kind of, I don't know, the Henry James mode or something. And he, his uh, publisher sends him to San Diego, uh, to Los Angeles to rejuvenate himself. And he goes to a cocktail party at a beach community, which is actually about a real a uh, uh, group that existed, kind of headed by Jake Seitlin, who is one of LA's great book dealers in mm -hmm. uh, the 20s and 30s. And the first person he meets is this beautiful but somewhat dour woman. And he says, and she says, what do you do? He says, I'm a novelist. What do you do? She says, I give and receive pain. I mean, <laughs> novel. <laughs> the novel. <laughs> Keeps going, Amy Semple McPherson appears, convinces the world that the sailor she's having an affair with is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, of course, you know, LA's washed out to sea or something like that. You know, it's an obligatory catastrophe at the end. It's a fabulous book. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And all I know about it up till now is it's excerpted in the Library of America um, Writing Los Angeles anthology. And you write about it in um, Ecology of Fear in that wonderful chapter, maybe my favorite chapter of everything I've loved by you, where you read, it sounds like scores of books about the apocalypse in Los Angeles and, uh, and, and tabulate and criticize and critique and delve into them, uh, um, books that are long, long since gone. Um, do you well, read them? Go ahead. My, my model for this is, uh... I, you know, I'm a jazz buff, and Gunther Schuller is this famous composer, jazz historian, and he wrote this monumental book on swing, but the principle of it is that he decided he had to listen to 
every extant uh, recording. And it took him like, I don't know, 15 years. So the approach I took, because there is actually an incredibly helpful bibliography of uh, California fiction, is to read every single disaster book written about uh, Southern California. And the real point of the chapter is the argument that this whole genre of LA destroyed has consistently erased its subtext, whether it's the Japanese or, or African Americans. Uh, and so this is not an innocent genre uh, at all. Uh, one can make the same point actually about uh, Raymond Chandler. <clears throat> whose figure Marlowe is really a kind of proto-fascist, if you think of it. And hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry to say it, but he's the small businessman fighting the evil system. And there's also always the ratio uh, uh, innuendo. And his last book in particular uh, is easy to take as being, you know, being anti-Semitic. I read Chandler as much as uh, anybody. It's always struck me the extent to which this has gone unnoticed. Uh, and so much of LA fiction, uh, I think you, you find the similar thing. Well, uh, I, I go back to the cop, the very sympathetic, multi-dimensional cop in Red Wind, um, Ibarra. And I will, I will use him as my alibi for loving Chandler as much as I do. Um, we will put all these recommendations uh, before long, I hope, on the Libros website, because there's nothing I would rather have um, with me at Libros Schmibros than Mike Davis's guide to fine, if slightly hard to find, writing. Um, let me- particularly, particularly Ward Moore. People should discover Ward Moore. He's the guy. He's LA's, uh, you know, one of LA's two greatest um, science fiction writers. I will chase him down. And of course, a proud addition to the LA shelf is your new book, yours and John Wiener's, Set the Night on Fire. How did you decide to use a Doors lyric for the title, by the way? Oh, I decided it somewhere in the, in, in the beginning, but I never dreamt that we'd uh, actually get in official permission. You had uh, to ask the, what, the Morrison estate? Or how did the, how'd you do that? No, no, no. Uh, uh, God, I'm sorry. I have Alzheimer's. Uh, the drummer. <laughs> uh, is Eric. Huh? Raymond Zarek. Yeah. 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 We, uh, you know, we met with him and uh, uh, interviewed him and stuff. And he got behind uh, uh, the project. And I had to apologize to him and, and, and say, uh, uh, look, uh, I was the last person in, on earth to hear of, of Jim Morrison. I, I missed all that. And he says, I wish I'd never heard of Jim Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're having memory trouble, that's the kind of memory trouble that I want because <laughs> your mind remains prodigious. Are we in your library, by the way? Yeah, uh, I tend to give my libraries away. I mean, I, I buy an awful lot of books, but when I use them, I get rid of them. And, and basically what I save are uh, some history, history and um uh, my hobby for a lifetime has been geology so out of my garage is a whole library of earth science books and i keep those but otherwise 
I regard books as, you know, necessary tools. Uh, I don't really fall into Walter Benjamin's thing about the, uh, you know, the aura books and so on. And I never reread my own books, which can get very embarrassing. Uh, when I get asked questions and I've forgotten them, was that chapter in City Course? Did I really say that? Um, because I discovered a long time ago, if you don't reread your own books and if you ignore book reviews, then you can move, you can move on very quickly from one project to another. And until recent good fortunes, I've always had to struggle to find writing uh, uh, time. So I pretty much stuck to that principle uh, uh, zealously. And well, uh, I have no intention of reading. Well, all I can say, <laughs> Mike, is... tonight on fire either. I mean, all I can say is you don't know what you're missing. Um, <laughs> it, it, and if you ever find any of those necessary tools growing unnecessary to you again, there's nothing I'd rather have than an ex Libris Mike Davis shelf to show off in the Libros window. Okay, um, would you let me do a final shout out? Yes, of folks, course, by all, all means. The folks, all the folks on the, uh, on the east side, I have so many wonderful memories. So I'm still mourning the fact that the damn public radio station in Pasadena took the uh, Poncho show off the air. Oh, yes, KCSN. Oh, yeah, that was, that was uh, a real loss, a bad move. No longer anybody to to say, hey, and I'm shouting out to uh, all the kids in Pico Rivera who were, you know, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful program, like so many things on, on the east side, wonderful. Mm. Unless, they, unless they found a home on KP, uh, KPFK, I'll have to look that up. No, um, no I don't uh, think so. What a pity. Um, well, anytime you feel up to making it back to the east side, Mike, you have the, the widest of embraces waiting for you at Libros Shmibros. Um, and uh, it's just been a thrill having you as uh, our, our um, inaugural guest on the Libros Shmibros podcast. Um, I, I, uh, and I and the whole Libros family just couldn't be prouder that you've given us this time. Um, congratulations on the book. And uh, yes, you're, we will convey your shout out to the whole neighborhood with pride. Yeah. Thank you so much, David and Quatemek, for this. It was an honor. Ah, for us as well. So long, Mike. Bye, David. So ends another episode of Libro Schmibros, recorded at the bilingual nonprofit Libro Schmibros Lending Library in Boyle Heights. By all means, follow us online in all the old familiar places or email us via info at libroschmibros.org. By the way, we couldn't do this podcast without the whole Libros team, Guatemoc, Colleen, Diana, and Alberto. And all of them would kill me if I didn't add this. Please consider visiting libroschmibros.org, hitting the donut button, <laughs> the donate button, and giving us a gift. We put good free books into people's hands five days a week here at Libros, right across from Mariachi Plaza, up in the old Boyle Hotel. I'm David Kippen, and there'll always be a free book for you and thousands more to borrow here at Libros Schmibros. <laughs>